He said, without giving anything away, let me say this. I made a bunch of ghosts. They were sort of cynical. They were stuck in this realm called the bardo from the Tibetan notion of a sort of transitory purgatory between rebirths. Stuck because they'd be unhappy or satisfied in life. The greatest part of their penance is that they feel utterly inessential and capable of influencing the living. Welcome back to the Redfern Book Review. I am your host, Amy Mayer, and today we're going to tackle a topic that's um, a bit out there, and that is magical realism. And we're going to look at a trio of three books uh, that all focus around this theme. And those books are The Book of Form and Emptiness by Ruth Ozeki. Parakeet by Marie Helene Bertino, and my favorite, and the winner of the Booker Prize in 2017, uh, Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. But before we get to the books, I want to talk with you about a couple of things that I'm watching and I'm listening to. So I recently just tuned in and binged uh, Only Murders in the Building. And it is a TV show that you can find on Hulu in the States, and you can also find it on Disney+. Plus. And kind of funny, and I'm sure this happens to you, I was, I've was i been talking about it, raving about it to a couple of friends, and uh, one of the people I was talking to was my good friend Jennifer, and she's like, actually, I told you about that show. So how many of you guys do that, where... Um, totally someone tells you something and then you go and tell them the same thing back. If that isn't the definition of middle age, I'm not sure what is. But anyway, uh, a a little bit about this show. It is a stylish, hilarious murder mystery, and it features Martin Short, Steve Martin, and Selena Gomez. And Steve Martin is a, a B actor, who's not really working anymore and kind of dining off uh, a, like a cop show from 30, 20 years ago. Martin Short is a washed-up Broadway director, and Selena Gomez is a young 20-something. And they all live in the same amazing stone building in the Upper West Side. And one day, there a fire alarm goes off. And So they end up running outside the building and they end up in the same coffee shop or restaurant and they all find out by accident they're tuning into the same true crime podcast. So I particularly love this for so many reasons um, because it delves into the whole world of podcasts and kind of makes fun of it. it, talks about listenership and uh, super fans, and it actually shows them making um, the podcast. But what ends up happening, so it turns out these three unlikely people come together over this love of this podcast, but then there is a murder in the building. So then they decide to investigate through by creating their own true crime pro- podcast. 
Uh, this show is just, it has wonderful stage sets filled with saturated color and a little kind of Wes Anderson feel. Um, there's uh, star turns by Sting, who's one of the suspects, Nathan Lane, and Tina Fey. So you've got to check this out. Okay, the second thing I'm going to talk about is a wonderful um, podcast that is very much in line with the theme of magical realism that we're going to be talking about today, and it's called Everything is Alive, and it is an eccentric, quirky, fantastic performance art podcast, and it is put together by a former producer of NPR's Fresh Air with uh, Terry Gross, who sort of the queen of um, just literature and podcasts, and she's wonderful. And another NPR writer, and a a former writer for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And she also has an education in performance art, which is really what this is about. So what what this show is about is it is looking at just everyday objects and believing that they're alive. And... Uh, the cover art for this, I love the cover art for this podcast. It's a a Dutch little master painting with kind of a moody background with uh, a goblet with glowing liquid, probably from candlelight in the background, a lemon rind, like half-eaten piece of bread and an overturned cake tray, and very much um, representative of that style of painting, which was filled with, um, the still lives at that time were uh, filled with kind of religious symbolism because of the church you couldn't, um, the Dutch Reformed Church, you couldn't overtly talk about um, uh, Christ. And so a lot of things were um, kind of embedded within, like, you know, I think bees meant things and certain flowers meant things. And also it was um, the Dutch little master paintings were kind of a display of wealth. Like if there was a certain goblet, it would show that you could afford something from far away and also just the prosperity of the upper classes. So that's a bit of an aside. But this this podcast is super fun. And I dropped in on an episode about Sal the Sock. And it's just basically, it's this um, guy with a, a sock narrates it. And he's got this heavy, heavy New York accent. And he just starts talking about his life. And he actually is a um, athletic sock, but athletics. But he, but he actually doesn't. Um, his the person that whose foot that he covers doesn't work out, so he feels kind of like a loser. And he talks about how argyles are kind of top of the chain, and sometimes he gets to be around argyle socks. And holiday socks are the worst. They're like like super tacky and not cool. And a lot of what he's talking about is he's in love with his mate, the other sock, and that sock, of course, has gone missing. And I learned, see, we all know that socks go missing, but I thought it was because of the dryer. But um, Sal the Sock says the real culprit is the washing machine. So they get stuck in the washing machine and that's where they go. So anyway, the point of this that this um, series, you'll he, they feature socks, a Coca Cola can, a bike, but it really is sort of uh, talking about 
um, you know, it's a metaphor for real life and real relationships. And it's also just hilarious. So check that out. Okay, so let's move over and talk about the books. So what I wanted to talk about today is books that focus on magical realism. And magical realism, as probably the way you know it, um, is been it was popularized in 1920 and with by a German painter. And it really is kind of a mashup of um, fantasy and realism. And it is a hallmark in 20th century literature. And it really was popular, is popular in Latin literature. Um, you probably have read or know about, like Water for Chocolate. It's possible. Um, it is popular in Isabel Allende's work and Gabrielle Garcia Marquez's work. Um, in um, American literature, you can find it with Alice Hoffman in books like Practical Magic. And what's interesting about it, I was doing some research on it, and what what it does is it uses fantastical, magical elements, and that infuses it into a realistic story. And what is cool about it is it kind of has a way of um, highlighting real life in putting a spotlight on, on things in a unique and clever way. So let's talk about um, the books. Okay. So the first book was a really big book of last year, and it's called The Book of Form and Emptiness by Ruth Ozeki. This book is crazy. It is um, very long. It is extremely experimental. And so kind of up front, I would say this is definitely not for everybody, but I did want to talk about it because it is very well done. And if you're looking for kind of something out of the box, this could be for you. Um, Ozeki wrote a book that was very popular. I never read it. It was called A Tale for the Time Being, and it tells the story of a mysterious diary written by a troubled schoolgirl in Tokyo that washes up um, on the shores of the Pacific Northwest. And it, it combines element of elements of magical realism. But this particular book, what this book is about is there is a boy who has lost his father. His father was a beloved musician, and um, he obviously clearly had some type of mental illness. And his bo- his father goes out in the back lane one day, and um, I think he's talking to birds or something similar, and he's run over by a truck. And so in the meantime, his mother uh, is a hoarder, and that's how she starts to cope with her um, husband's death. And the other thing is she does kind of news listening or news watching So she for a company. So she sits in her house, she doesn't take care of herself, and she listens to media through TV and the computer and takes notes. And she's just kind of, she's lost a little bit of touch with reality and, you know, loves her son very much, but... He, um, this boy, 13-year-old Benny O, really has to figure out how to um, manage on his own. And so what happens is one day shortly after his dad dies, he starts to hear things. He hears a sneaker. He hears a broken Christmas ornament. 
a piece of wilted lettuce, and it all makes sense to him. And these voices are very loud, and they're very real. And um, he doesn't know what to do. And the the voices kind of override everything. And he doesn't get along. He doesn't really have very many friends at school. And so what he does is he starts skipping school and ends up at the library, which, of course, for writers is just a treasure trove. And readers. Readers just love anything that takes place in a library. And so he ends up at the library, and he's not. He's supposed to be in school, and so kind of a rat, he forms a ragtag group of friends or a found family that help him. And one of them, uh, like a homeless person, helps him get past the librarian in the morning. And then he snakes his way upstairs and hides in a carol where he reads all day. And reading is his refuge. But these voices won't go away. And he, um, what's interesting about it is in this particular author. She's also a Zen Buddhist master. And in Zen Buddhism, there is a a theory that objects, um, depending when, when an object is made, for example, if the person's upset when they make it, or all the people that touch the object as it's made, those feelings get caught up in the object and passed along. And so there's a little bit of... Um, that thought or Zen Buddhism um, incorporated into this book. So in a way, um, I think it, it, in some ways this book is a bit about mental illness, but it's also about someone that has just kind of working on a higher level and maybe, maybe they're the ones that aren't crazy and that are most in touch. But um, I wanted to read with you a little, just to give you a little flavor from this book. And what I'll say, just to add to the craziness of this book, uh, one of the characters in the book is the book itself. And um, the book is a person, and he is a friend of Benny's. And so the book starts to talk about kind of how it's kind of a bummer to be a book and how to be a person you can feel more fully. And here's what the book in the book has to say. But here's another question. Has it ever occurred to you that books have feelings too? As you listen to this romantic tale of two ill-fated lovers, do you ever stop to wonder what it feels like for us? Because in truth, if skin marks the border where an I and a you begins, then there are moments of impassioned boundary crossing called love. We envy you. It's that simple. We envy you, your bodies. How can we not? Books have bodies too, but ours lack the organs needed to experience the world. The skin that covers our boards and encloses our words is different from yours. Our skin, whether made from paper or parchment or cloth, or these days, some combination of plastic, glass, and metal, fulfills a similar function of making our perimeters. But even the most haptic and capacitive of our skins cannot experience pleasure the way yours can. We cannot feel the ecstasy, ecstasy, the merging of self and other. Oh, sure, you can say that acts of literature are kind of impassioned boundary crossing too, but literature acts are inherently disembodied, more, more notional and distributed. 
We rely on you to embody us, and we exist because you can. So while we are cognizant of your fingers rifling through our pages, and we can describe in words the bitter taste of coffee or pecan sauce, we do not experience these sensations as you do on your tongue, against your skin, inside your human body. It's hard not to feel that we might be missing something. So that's that. So... Um, I wanted to then move over and talk about another book. I wanted to mention another book that I read last year, and it's called Parakeet by Marie Helene Bertino. And she's an American writer, and she has written a fantastical book that I would call a rom-com meets magical realism. And it's about an ambivalent bride, and it includes dream sequences and and body swapping. This, again, is also um, very experimental, but I would say it is um, a shorter book and an easier-to-read book. So if you want to dip into this genre, this this could be um, for you. And what it's about it is about a bride. And it doesn't say, but it really feels like it's the author herself, kind of autofiction, but I have no evidence for that. But she writes kind of in that um, first-person way. But um, there's an ambivalent bride, and she's holed up in a hotel. And she's sitting there, and all of a sudden, a parakeet flies into the room. And she immediately knows, um, the, and the parakeet talks, and she immediately knows that the parakeet is actually her dead grandmother. And she knows this because of the parakeet's cornflower blue eyes and because of the fact that the parakeet asks, what is the internet? And so she's kind of stunned and can't believe um, the parakeet, the, her grandmother is there. And the parakeet says to her, you know what? You need to get out of this hotel and uh, get out of this marriage and go find your brother because the main character has lost touch with her brother who is suffering from mental illness and um, the grandmother really wants them to reunite. And then after that, the parakeet ruins her dress. So then um, the woman has to go and find a new dress and she goes on a mission to um, find her brother. So it's just kind of... uh, yeah, I would say it's a wild ride and it's fragmented and unstable and surreal, but it really talks about kind of being a woman at 36 and uses these fantastical elements to kind of highlight um, maybe a, an ambivalency in a young woman thinking about marriage. Okay, so now to my the last book we're going to talk about, and this one is a keeper. I just love this book. And you know what's really interesting? Okay, the book is Lincoln and the Bardo. And what's really interesting about this book is I have talked to this to people about this book and sort of what they would say uh, in, in uh, the literary world down a hand cell like you do at the bookstore where a, a bookkeeper comes up and starts t- to just talk to you about what they like. Um, I've had a number of people, a few people say, oh, you know, I didn't like that book or I didn't get it or I couldn't get through it. I love this book. So I'll just tell you a bit about it. First of all, I'm a huge George Saunders fan. Um, he teaches uh, creative writing at Syracuse University. 
He is known for his short stories. I love him. I've heard him speak. He speaks in a very uh, plain speaking way, kind of a folksy, um, he's got a kind of a Midwestern or Southern um, dialect. And he, what I love, he's so smart, but he speaks very simply and um, is very easy to understand. He wrote a fantastic book um, out called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. And at his school, he said the class that has changed his life and his most popular class is where he does a book on the Russian masters. And so he's written this book. And um, that's not what we're going to talk about today, but I just have to include mention of this book. And he does a little like going to school, like a course uh, just for the average reader. And he reads, um, he includes stories by Tolstoy and the other Russian masters. And then he breaks them down like a good teacher would and gets you to think about them differently and understand their significance. And he personally believes that the Russian masters are the best short storytellers. So George Saunders is known, as I said, for his short stories and also for um, just magazine articles. But this, I believe, is his first novel. It's experimental, and what's so cool about it is it combines his historical novel and magical realism. It's set in 1862 in the first year of the Civil War, and Abraham Lincoln's son, Willie, is dying. And this is inspired by uh, a family member of George Saunders who told him that, uh, in fact, Willie, his son, did die, and it had a profound effect on Lincoln. And there are scholars that believe it had actually had um, quite an effect on the outcome of the Civil War or uh, policy that he was making. And he was grieving and that he often visited his uh, son's crypt at Oak Hill Cemetery in Georgetown uh, to try and hold the body. So that just got Saunders thinking, and he, in his mind, envisioned um, the Lincoln Memorial meets the Pieta, so that kind of, um, you know, very uh, magisterial, Uh, oversized uh, presidential Lincoln Memorial, and then contrasted that with the Pieta, which if you've seen, I'm sure you know about that or seen it, um, in Rome, where uh, it's Mary Magdalene, and she is in exquisite pain or pleasure. You're not really sure. And So with that, um, I also wanted to read a quote on what George Saunders, um, how he describes this book. He said, without giving anything away, let me say this. I made a bunch of ghosts. They were sort of cynical. They were stuck in this realm called the Bardo from the Tibetan notion of a sort of transitory purgatory between rebirths. Stuck because they'd be unhappy or satisfied in life. The greatest part of their penance is that they feel utterly inessential and capable of influencing the living. So this book features 166 characters, and they include a soldier, a murderer, 
a disgraced clerk, a rape victim, and all kinds of people that made up society at that time. And so uh, what happens is this book starts out where Lincoln and his wife are throwing a dinner party, and I think they kind of have to. And the Civil War is raging, and upstairs their son Willie is dying. And they know that he's dying, and I believe he had tuberculosis or something similar. But they have to go on with this event. And so then he does die. And this takes place. um, He is buried, but his soul isn't resting. And so this takes place in, I think, a night. One night at the cemetery. And Lincoln is there. And all these cast of characters come floating through and have things to say, and they can't deal with anything. And it reminds me a lot of um, the movie Ghost, kind of, where, uh, and also A Christmas Carol. That's how I would kind of describe it. And I just, I just thought, um, I just, I can't say enough about it, and I would give this five stars. And his, um, uh, influences, I just wanted to add, are um, he loves the Russian masters, but he also loves Mark Twain and Groucho Marx and Monty Python, Steve Martin and Jack Handy. And he loves Ernest Hemingway and Raymond Carver and Tobias Wolf. So I think all those things are kind of bound up into one. So with that, I just wanted to thank you so much for listening today and uh, appreciate you listening and I hope I've given you some things to think about and um, I will talk to you later and please uh, check out my website at www.redfernbookreview.com thank you so much and I'll talk to you later